Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Our next guest on the Traveling Image Makers podcast is none other than Brian Peterson. Uh, Brian and I have been acquaintances for some 10 years or more now, but I hadn't talked to him or seen him in quite a few years. That is until the last year uh, at the Out of Chicago and Out of New York photography conferences where we were both instructors and ran into each other. Uh, Brian is a best-selling author of the Understanding series of books. He's written Understanding Exposure, Understanding Shutter Speed, Understanding Close-Up Photography, Understanding Flash, as well as Learning to See Creatively, amongst others. Uh, He's also the founder of BPSOP, the Brian Peterson School of Photography, which is a series of online courses that covers just about any specific photography niche you can think of. So you'll want to check out uh, that website. We'll put links in the show notes here. Uh, Brian is also an instructor at Autorama TV. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Ugo. How you doing, Ugo? I'm doing good. I just uh, returned two days ago from Chicago, where I had the pleasure to meet you once again. We're both there at the Out of Chicago Summer Photography Conference. Uh, we both were... Uh, I was an instructor there, and I think you you were doing a photo walk. It was a great event. We had lots of fun. So that's that's been great. The only unfortunate thing is that my suitcase is still somewhere in the air. I'm not exactly sure where. So I arrived home, but my suitcase is still to arrive. That's, uh, that's what you get for traveling sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got home. Yep. Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, Brian was a uh, has been an instructor and continues to be an instructor at Out of Chicago. Brian, you, are are you doing the uh, Out of Arcadia coming up? Or yeah, I'll be there uh, in October. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, briefly, while we're talking about, it, why don't you briefly tell us about that, if you would? Uh, well, I, oh, I tell you, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right guy to talk about it, other than it's a, essentially out of Chicago in a new location at Out of Acadia, with, with the obvious emphasis is going to be all about nature. And um, I'm going to return to Acadia. Actually, that's the first time for me. I haven't been to Acadia since uh, I was there with the Great American Photography Workshop series back in the uh, mid-90s. So uh, for me... Uh, this is obviously uh, a welcomed opportunity to work with Chris Smith again and uh, a host of others that I'm anxious to meet for the first time. But uh, it it also is for me, which is unusual, uh, to find myself so heavily embedded into the nature uh, photographic uh, environment, and I'm expecting that we're going to see a whole lot of people there that are involved in nature. So. So that's not your typical genre of photography, you're saying, right? Well, it's certainly where I got my foundation. Uh, You know, I started back uh, in 1970, hard to believe. It's been that long ago, although it seems like yesterday. But um, I did all the nature stuff uh, for well over, uh, I'd say, the first 10 years. And then quite by accident, I stumbled into a, a shipyard. Uh, and that's when my love affair began with uh, the corporate, uh, especially blue-collar industry world. And then I kind of got my feet wet shooting people. And, uh, you know, I was also uh, trying out uh, photos with the, you know, the quote, the girl next door kind of thing uh, when it came to shooting people. But um, so dabbling a little bit in, in nudes back then in nature. But, uh, again, I kept migrating back towards the whole blue-collar thing. And... Um, that, that changed everything about my direction. I, I kept doing nature from the standpoint of articles for photography magazines uh, and making tips about exposure and composition. But uh, my, my uh, commercial work really took off when I started shooting uh, a lot of the Fortune 500 stuff. So, Tell us a little bit more about uh, what you mean by the blue collar and, and that uh, part well, of the Yeah. Um, 
Well, again, it, I had a student uh, who wanted a one-on-one, and he mentioned to me that he was struggling himself in his own work environment where he was a foreman, actually not a foreman, but a manager in the office, for Dillingham Ship Repair. Uh, this was a company that worked on major uh, oil uh, shipping, uh, uh, you know, the big giant oil container ships. Uh, not container, but uh, oil oil hauling ships. Anyway, uh, in dry dock. And um, he said, um, I want to bring you down here and, and just show me what how to shoot this stuff. And I thought, oh, my God, you mean I don't have a clue. I mean, it's out of my element. It's not nature. It's not ocean waves and waterfalls and mushrooms and stuff like that. But I decided, oh, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, the thing that that I probably uh, didn't expect was the trans- transition from uh, nature to that kind of work uh, was so, so fluid for me because the principles of composition were obviously the same. Elements of design with a major emphasis on both lines and textures. And um, I had a fabulous time. And so I just briefly shared some of those results with people in the uh, industry who cater to that clientele, uh, corporate uh, clients. Uh, and I went to a couple of graphic designers that I knew and said, hey, what do you think of this stuff? And they just went, oh, man, you, you got to do this more often. And I said, oh, really? I, I don't know. It's kind of weird because it's not nature. They said, yeah, so what? <laughs> You're good at it. And I said, really? Well, maybe you should try it. So anyway, um, I spent a couple of years working on the portfolio still doing nature assignment work uh, back then, which you could actually do, and um, then um, decided to, to go up the road uh, from Portland, Oregon to Seattle. And I subsequently um, got five annual report jobs, which is unheard of uh, today, but back then it wasn't that uncommon. Uh, not five, my apologies. I interviewed for five and got three annual report jobs by the end of the week. And that's when I also realized the importance of scheduling because I committed to all three without realizing that the dates of two of them overlapped. And uh, so I called the client back and I said, I messed up. I can't do, I can't be in two places at once. And so fortunately they were able to reschedule. So anyway, and the rest is kind of history, uh, meaning that I spent the next, uh, oh, roughly 15 years doing uh, a lot of corporate stuff and also moving from that eventually into advertising work uh, where I was working for some of the higher profile clients like uh, UPS. I worked for them for 13 years in a row. Um, American Express uh, all over Europe and Central America and then uh, Kodak of course too which a lot of people did but um, that was another another fun job because it was three different shoots. You had UPS knock at your door with like six or eight hundred rolls of film uh, unmarked. You didn't know what it was because it was a new film, and you're signing a, a you know, a non-disclosure kind of stuff. And you just, you know, with Kodak, it was uh, everybody's dream client because they say, "Here's a quarter million dollars. Here's your budget. Uh, just go out and do what you got to do for the next three weeks and send the film in." Wow. And it's like, okay, and of course with that amount of budget you're hiring models and wardrobes and stylists and makeup people and renting rvs and filling it full of props and so anyway a lot of fun back then so brian before i ask you a question i just would just like to say how excited i am i am to have you here today especially since i have in front of me here two of your books have understanding exposure and beyond portraiture these were some of the first books on photography that i bought when i when I started thinking about becoming a serious photographer. So they've uh, helped me immensely at my at the beginning. So I would like to, to thank you for that. Uh, how many books have you published so far? Do you know? A couple of coffee tables uh, and then my first how-to book uh, was called Photographing Oregon with Professional Results. Um, so you can throw those three in there, the 14th. Yeah. There's a brand new one, by the way, coming out uh, the 17th of August. Another understanding series, Ralph, and this one is understanding color, um, and that'll be out the seventeenth uh, of August. I just got an advanced copy of that two days ago. 
And before we were uh, starting this uh, this interview, we, you showed to me the Italian version of Understanding Exposure. So <laughs> I'm going to recommend it to all my Italian friends. Uh, they should. Yeah, it's, it's the uh, fourth edition, and that just arrived also uh, the same package two days ago. You also do a lot of educational work uh, on, on your website. I think it's uh, com, if that is correct, uh, which is also the, the tagline at the end of your videos. Can you tell us more about that website? Well, it isn't launched yet. Um, it's in the process of being worked on, and uh, but hopefully uh, sometime later in the fall uh, we get it launched. Uh, the only thing I've done is... Um, Besides the website, is I've trademarked the name and uh, starting to put a little bit of content on there, but I also got some hats made, which are so critical to wear a hat that says you keep shooting. <laughs> so, For those of you who can't see, Brian's wearing that hat right now. Oh, I absolutely, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, but that's still a few months away. Um, and I, I essentially what I'm expecting it to be is, is the portal – that has all of the You Keep Shooting videos and organized in a way that becomes very user-friendly. Uh, and then ongoing each month, uh, there'll be a, a minimum of 12 new videos added uh, along with a photo contest, a, a public forum, uh, bi-weekly critiques uh, where students are encouraged to upload examples of that are being offered in the monthly videos, and uh, essentially just a photographic community site. So. Uh, speaking of videos, tell you, know, you do a lot of uh, instructional videos. Um, are are the, you know? Tell us about that process. Are you shooting these uh, very uh, planned in advance? Or are they spontaneous when you're on the spot? How does how do these videos come about? No, for, yeah, no. For the most part, Ralph, uh, they're very much shooting from the hip. Uh, as an example, when I'm finished with this interview, I'm going to be heading up. I've got another week off, which is really welcomed because I'm on the road constantly. But uh, I'm going to take off to uh, the Olympic National Forest and over to Forks, Washington, and up on the uh, Washington State uh, coastline uh, with the intention of just uh, doing nothing but Brian Peterson photography. There's no workshop. There's no books, deadlines. There's nothing to write material for. Um, so I, and I, of course with me, I'll have my uh, video equipment. And so, uh, as I'm finding myself shooting, what often happens, uh, is I just say, man, this is make a good video, or I want to make sure I get a video of this. Sometimes I'll do the video after I've already done the shoot and act as if I haven't done the shoot yet. Uh, other times it's literally, you know, right there setting up the video and say, okay, let's start it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm making a video. So, uh, are you typically by yourself in that, uh, you know, are you, are you by yourself? Uh, no, I would say a third of the time, uh, I have the wonderful cooperation as well as the enthusiasm of my students in a workshop. Sometimes I'll focus on them. Um, they'll, they'll, you know, ask a question and I go, boy, that, that, that would make a great video actually. So let's make it into a video. And so, hey, I'm here with my students, and uh, we were just talking about blah, blah, blah. And perhaps it's something you struggle with, too. So I thought, why not share this, uh, you know, question as well as the answer of how to solve that problem with you as well as the students here in the workshop. Hi, I'm Brian Peterson, and you're watching blah, blah, blah. So what about this uh, upcoming trip that you have this week? Uh, will you be by yourself and vi actually videotaping yourself at the same time? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's easy to do. I mean, you set up the Nikon D810 with the 24 to 120, usually at 24 to 35. Um, you put the tripod where you want it to be that's going to be in the video, and you focus on that, then you make sure you stand next to the tripod during most of the video. And uh, <laughs> go from there. So, and really, for the most part, my, my videos are by no means professional uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we've got 12 different angles and takes and tons of B roll. Um, they're pretty, pretty, but, but they don't have to be. It's like, hey, as you can see, I'm here, you know, with crashing surf and rocks. And uh, do you ever know what shutter speed to use for a shot like this when you got the birds flying around? Well, believe it or not, a one five hundredth of a second is all you need. And here's why. Uh, look what happens when we go to a 2,000th. Yeah, you can't tell the difference between the two. Why? Because the shutter speed's fast enough at a 500. So, you know, it's it's overkill to use anything faster. So, something like that. Yeah, cool. Speaking of workshops, you lead trips to 
places like Myanmar, Ethiopia, India, Florida, and so on. Um, how do you choose those places for your workshops? Uh, well, the obvious would be that I want to make certain that people come back home with spoils from the hunt, as they say. Um, you know, the old saying, when you go shoot lions, you don't go to Manhattan. Um, so you go where you know that there's photographic opportunity combined with photographic opportunity to other people want to either photograph, if not learn how to photograph, uh, you know, while you're there. Um, uh, the the one thing I try to avoid, and sometimes you can't because it strictly doesn't make economic sense to avoid it, is to go to the the, the happening hot places. Um, I've I've avoided up until last year going to Iceland, uh, and finally it was students who said, "You either put Iceland on that workshop, or I'm going to go elsewhere." And it's like, yeah, okay, fine, you know. So, but for the most part, I like to choose locations that are not really high on people's radar or are not considered to be something that they would normally attend. And you'll never find me going to Bryce or Zion uh, or uh, Monument Valley or Antelope Canyon or Horseshoe Bend or, you know, none of those places. Um, I'm, just, I'm just not into going to a place that has been shot and shot and overshot. It makes no sense. Any of the beaten places that you might want to include in a future workshops that like very few people have been to? Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a valid question. And, and I would say for the most part, those places I want to go to just with Brian Peterson. Um, there, there, there's something, uh, I guess, to be said still uh that there's there's a few places in the world that I I want to keep to myself and uh and not share the results with everybody um so yeah, to answer your question I would say yes and no um uh, there was a time when when nobody went to Ethiopia and now that's becoming um you know real popular so I'm guessing that this will be my last trip to Ethiopia with a group Um, the one coming up in January, uh, Myanmar, uh, and I say this in, in, in the, in the, I don't know, the best possible way, uh, Myanmar is still for a lot of people, um, somewhat hesitate to go because there's still some degree of political unrest there, uh, which is fine because it keeps people away. Um, India seems to have run its course, which is great because there's less people there now than there was five years ago, except for things like the Camel Festival and then Holi. But see, this is my point. Um, a lot of people book workshops or they go to these places when they have the highest possible turnout for photographers and, and, and whatnot. And, and to me, that's not something that's exciting. Um, I, I don't understand the, the, the reasoning behind that. Uh, why would you go to India to shoot holy when it's been shot to death? What are you going to come back with that's going to really impress me? And it's like, well, uh, take a look. And it's like, yeah, well, I've seen this so many times. It's like shooting sunrise or something. I'm not sure. You say, How's this sound? Tell you how stupid I am. I'm not sure if it's sunrise or sunset that people shoot at Horseshoe Bend. But I know... It has been shot a hundred times, if not a thousand times, within a given week. Uh, and people walk away from there with this great sense of satisfaction. But and I apologize, I'm getting a little political here, but or artistic maybe is the right word. But what does one gain from, in effect, shooting an image that violates copyright law Uh, 999 other time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, wait a minute, that's my shot. No, it isn't. It's my shot. No, I was the first one that got it. Um, yeah. And to me, there's, there's, if we're really and truly supposed to be creative, then let's create something that people haven't seen before. And, and look, don't be wrong. Yeah. I, I'm guilty of going to two places as well. Um, but you're not going to see the standard fare of landscapes of my work. Um, just doesn't happen. And nowadays you can go to a holy festival without even going to India. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if you want to go to the arts and crafts store, you can buy a bunch of powdered paints and dump them on your kids and they can jump in the air for you. So, um, 
I hate to say it like that, but my but that's my point. It, it's it it's becoming this um this 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 thing, and um, I'm strongly recommending everybody should go to Holy at least once in their life, but don't go to Holy with the intention of coming away with images that nobody's seen before. Uh, that's one of the challenges, no doubt. But 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 go to Holy because you happen to be there at that time of year. But but man, there's so much other things to shoot. I mean. I'm the guy who goes to uh, India, obviously, with these workshops and have no trouble filling them up. But people are shocked when they go, why are we stopping here? I say, you didn't see the chip paint on that wall back there? Man, that's incredible. And they go, what? I came all the way to India to shoot chip paint. And I said, well, this isn't your ordinary chip paint. And by the time we're done, I have them pulling the students away, saying, we've got to go. Because it was a, yeah, but this is phenomenal. I never shot chip paint before. And you're right. This is amazing. Not that you can't find that in Manhattan, but my point is, it's it's one thing to go to a place, and it's another to come back with something that hasn't been done before. And that that's really should be the goal of all of us, in my opinion. So as someone who's been in this business since 1970, uh, tell us about how your job has changed over that, that period of time. Oh, well, it's changed from a commercial standpoint. Uh, it's changed dramatically uh, from how images get delivered to a client to what a client expects. I can't tell. In fact, I don't do assignment work, but maybe. I mean, we're talking a maximum assignment for me to do twice a year, and that would be it, uh, as opposed to trying to do assignment work, uh, you know, every week. Um, part of the reason is I've had clients, this is up till a few years back, they would say to me, they said, look, it's not that critical uh, that you get a, B, C, or D shots because we can do composites. And it's like, well, why'd you hire me for that? Well, because we do need some some foundation to begin with. But don't worry about it. And if, if the light's no good, we'll go ahead and have a retoucher fix it up. And I'm thinking, this isn't fun anymore. It just is no fun. And budgets have been slashed considerably. Um, I will say this, and I, and I can't stress this enough. The one area that I, I think it's safe to assume correctly for the readers or listeners out there uh, magazine work as we know it from the editorial standpoint has just got killed um, but that doesn't mean there still isn't opportunities for one to shoot in the corporate world as well as in the advertising arena but again there is a tremendous amount of um, photoshop work being done uh, there is a tremendous amount of composite being done the budgets are not as great uh, but look, so you don't have a quarter million dollar budget anymore. You still have a hundred thousand dollar budget. Um, you know, what's going to happen uh, 10 years from now? I, honestly, I don't know. I just know that what was it yesterday as another example of how things have changed. Uh, I, I didn't see the actual show. I read about it, that Harry Connick's talk show, uh, the entire thing was filmed with an iPhone seven plus, uh, all the video. That's pretty amazing. Uh, just like I think it was the fifth or sixth cover of Elle magazine was shot with an iPhone. Um, the iPhone has has been a godsend uh, to our business on the one hand because it's got people interested in photography. And then they also get to a point with the iPhone and they realize this camera really is limited. So they, they go from the iPhone in the old days, they would go from a digital point-and-shoot or a film point-and-shoot into an SLR or a DSLR. Uh, now that market, the digital point-and-shoot market, as most industry people will tell you, is completely dead. Uh, but they're jumping from iPhone into digital SLRs. I can't tell you how many students I've had in the last couple of years who started with an iPhone. And they just found the limitations of it was too frustrating, so they moved into a DSLR. What we're finding... Do you see yourself uh, shooting videos, your videos maybe with an iPhone in the future? That you said you were using a DA10. But... I've, I've already done it. Mm -hmm. uh, shot in not many. I've only shot in three or shot three. Um, shot in, there's a word. <laughs> <laughs> I've only sense. shot in three. That's, that's the new word for iPhone video. You go out and do some shotins. Um <laughs> But I just ordered, uh, which could change everything, could be a big game changer. I did not know they made such a thing, but there is now a lavalier mic for the iPhone. 
which I ordered. Um, and I'll be, uh, without question, uh, calling upon that uh, for a really quick uh, uh, kind of really super shooting from the hip kind of videos. So uh, let's say that I'm driving down the road and I see a bear. Uh, maybe I'm going to start iPhoning that immediately. Uh, I get out of the car and iPhone it, and for whatever reason, the bear stands up on his hind legs and lets me take his picture. I don't know, uh, the, but that would be 100% iPhone as an example. But uh, anyway, so I use that lavalier mic quite a bit for the iPhone. It works really well. Oh, good, good. Yeah, which, what, I'm sorry to, to, to let's let's not necessarily do a plug, but it, which brand is it? I think it's the iRig. I rig bike or something like that. I had mentioned this to the uh, people in London who deal with the editing for Adorama TV. I mentioned it to one of the editors, and I said, "Boy, it's frustrating because I'd love to get a lavalier mic, but everything's Bluetooth." And she says, "No, no, they make one. I'll send you the link." And so I just ordered it, but I don't know if it was I rig or what. But uh, yeah, it works well because it uh, you don't have that wind noise from you know if you don't have a, a mic. Yeah, exactly. So if you weren't a photographer, what else might you be doing? Uh, probably painting, uh, sketching, drawing. I mean, that's how the whole thing started. Um, I was doing that from the age of about five, and um, I'm, I'm not a good uh, student uh, as far as school is concerned. I graduated uh, uh, with a 1.8 uh, GPA, grade point average, uh, which means I barely got to graduate. And... Um, it wasn't because of any other reason than I just, I liked art. <clears throat> so up to this point, I was doing a lot of sketching, pen and inks, and acrylic paintings as well. Mostly abstract uh, kind of stuff. Um, pop art, for lack of a better word, kind of an Andy Warhol thing, I suppose. But um, in 1970, my uh, brother, oldest brother, had just returned from being away at college. Uh, for about four years, and and I had complained to him. I said, "Man, it's taken forever to do some of these drawings because they were very detailed drawings out in nature, uh, pen and inks, uh, charcoals, and whatnot." And um, he said, "Well, why don't you just borrow my Nikon and take pictures, and then you can process them in the darkroom, and then just stay at home and sketch off the prints. You know, you can use the print as an as your guide." And I said, "Oh, that's fabulous!" And honestly, I went out and shot a roll of black and white that weekend plus X pan with his Nikon Photomic. And I was absolutely blown away on Monday when I processed everything to have the immediacy of the print was just mind boggling. And honestly, I, I have not sketched or draw drew, uh, anything, uh, since that time. I went out and bought film the next day and, uh, borrowed his camera and about six months went by and he says, Hey, you got to get my camera back uh, to me. I, I, I need it. I said, oh, okay, I'll go out and buy one. So I bought a Nicromat with a 50-millimeter lens, and I haven't looked back since. So That's that's a great story. It's amazing how just something little like that can change your life, huh? Well, in my first, uh, or not my first book, my second book, which was Understanding Exposure, the dedication simply says to my brother Bill, who put a camera in my hand, and uh, it's it, yeah, you're right. I mean, just the little things that it can happen that change a person's life. It's remarkable. That's great. So, someone who's uh, traveled as much as you have, do you have any uh, funny or interesting, scary stories from the roads that from the road that you might tell us? Oh, I you know I, they cover the whole range of stuff. Um, funny, I mean, my God, um, probably the. Well, many, of the many funny stories, I was doing a job for National Geographic's Traveler magazine. This was back in, uh, boy, I stopped thinking about this. Um, had to be in the mid-early 90s, uh, and it was on Amsterdam. Um, and I was at the IT, which is the, at the time, was Europe's largest uh, gay nightclub. And I was finishing up the story on Nightlife of Amsterdam at this club. And it was a gigantic hash cloud, hash and marijuana, both. And uh, we closed the place down at 7 a.m., uh, me and my assistant, and went straight from there uh, to the airport in Amsterdam to fly back home. And we got off the plane, and uh, Barney the Beagle just went nuts over me, and I 
you know, was tired. And I didn't think twice about it. And I started petting the dog and he was licking me. And I thought, what a great dog, you know, and the, said to the customs officer, I said, you got a great dog here. And then they walked away and I thought, you know, nothing of it until it was my turn to get checked out. And they grabbed me by the arm and said, you need to come into this room. And I said, what? <laughs> so they, I had to take off all my clothes down to my underwear. They went through my bag. They literally tore the lining out of my bag. And they kept insisting I was carrying drugs. And I said, I don't have any drugs. And make a long story short, uh, it was from the hash cloud. It was in all my clothes, which is why the dog went crazy. And um, so they finally said, look, you got to just take a shower and do your laundry before you do this next time. Because you could have saved us all a bunch of trouble. <laughs> so, but there it was. They, they, they didn't fix my bag, by the way. Uh, they said that was my fault. <laughs> I had a bag with the lining all torn out. And <laughs> anyway, um, but I wrote a letter to the government about it, and they, they basically said it's not our fault, it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't smell like dope. Um, serious stuff. Uh, boy, I tell you, I've had a few run ins that were scary. Um, probably the worst was in Burundi, uh, Bourjambora, uh, Central Africa. I was there doing a corporate job during the Hutu and the Tutsi uprising, um, just before it happened, actually. And I was there for a couple of weeks, couldn't get out. Uh, we were being held up at a hotel. Uh, I actually got arrested uh, for 24 hours, accused of being a spy from Tanzania. Um, and it, it, without going into all the details, but um, when I got home, I, I didn't realize I'm, it's, it's probably a small episode of uh, PTSD uh, or whatever you want to call it. But I, I kind of was holding all this inside. Finally left Bourjambora, flew up to Brussels, Belgium, from Brussels nonstop to L.A. And I had nobody in L.A. to meet me. But as soon as the doors opened up, when you come outside to the customs and there's all the people with the roses and the flowers and the cards, you know, welcome home, daddy or mommy or whatever. I just came out and I remember, God bless America. <laughs> and I threw my arms out and I said, I love you all. <laughs> and I just started crying and I thought, what the hell is your problem? And I just felt this incredible release that I had no idea what I had just been through and nobody knew. And I was in jail and there was all these people that were slaughtering each other. And it was not fun, needless uh, to say. How did that make you feel? I mean, did you immediately think I, I need to go back on the horse immediately or I don't want to do this job anymore? Oh, no, no. In fact, um, I was uh, wanting to ironically go back in the worst way. But uh, at the time, I was not into the mindset of shooting, uh, you know, that kind of hard news kind of stuff. But um, I, you know, it was really strange because I started looking at the pictures when I processed everything and I had to get them to the client as well by FedEx once I got home and processed, but um, I, I, I was really troubled by the fact that a lot of the people that I'd photographed at this particular operation, uh, was for a Dutch flower growing company, first of all, and they had a number of fields down there that they grew the flowers, they were then cut, put into refrigerated trucks, and subsequently flew out of Bergenborough back up to Amsterdam where they were auctioned off at the uh, flower market at Alsmere. And a lot of the people that worked there were involved in the Hoodoo and Tutsu uprising. And so I, I was haunted a lot by these photographs because I thought, how many of these people actually ended up living? Because this went on after I got home for, for several uh, months, uh, and it was just bloodshed, as we saw in the news, uh, going on over there. So to this day, I can't tell you, because uh, I haven't been back, How many of these people survived? How many of them uh, were murdered uh, or, or involved in murdering? I really don't know. I really don't know. What year would that have been, Brian? Uh, well, let's see. If I've, I've got to get my mind on here, right? I believe it was it was during Clinton's administration, so uh, 93, 94. I'm, I'm not really sure, and I apologize. I know that he himself, as he looked back on his own presidency, Uh, he said if there's one thing that, that, that he's disappointed with, it would be his inability. His, he, he didn't do anything about it, uh, in his opinion. He didn't do anything quick enough. And, of course, we saw movies that were being made, um, probably the best one, which was, of course, the high-profile high one, I think, uh, Hotel Rwanda. 
which I actually enjoyed watching uh, up to a point, and then it brought back a lot of shivers, uh, you know, to me because I realized how lucky I was to have got out of there, uh, and at the same time, uh, I didn't witness nearly as much carnage as happened after I'd left. But uh, anyway, it was unfortunate, needless to say, very unfortunate. I think a half a people were killed. So, uh, and then I've had a few other things uh, that are just, you know, funny stuff. Um, uh, With students, um, some of them uh, completely unexpected and really random uh, things that have happened. You know, I had a student, uh, we were in the Columbia Gorge and we were setting up the tripod and, you know, in Ralph, I'm sure you've had this experience where you're, you're, you're just trying really hard to be a good instructor and extend and push people to be a little more creative and i had this guy out on this edge of this cliff and i said look just get down low it's going to be fine you know i said oh man my you're putting my camera out over the edge like that and i said no i got it don't worry about it it's going to be fine and so we're getting all set up and at this point i i i said to him i said hang on to your leg here otherwise it's going to fall because i need to get something and he says okay so i thought he said okay so i let go <laughs> and his camera falls 200 feet down the gorge wow. and a tripod the whole works but you know this is a chance for you to prove your worth as an instructor right so uh, during the next break uh, we were in portland we drove downtown from the gorge uh replaced the camera and lens with a tripod and the whole works and uh he was like what i said well don't worry about it. i have insurance for this and so we went back up and and the next day, actually, we were still in the area. We set the shot up all over again, and this time making sure that he was holding on. <laughs> so, anyway, those kind wow. of things. Yeah. So, what are you doing to to maintain your creativity and avoiding burnout when it comes to photography? You know, that, that's a really good question, and um, I, I don't feel, to be honest with you, um, a whole lot different today than I felt. In 1970, um, I still limit myself to, as an example, in my in my camera bag, uh, I've got a polarizer filter and a FLW and a tobacco graduated and a regular graduated, and then of course a ten stop, big stopper as it's called. Uh, and I'm only I'm saying this for this reason, I don't have lens babies, um, I don't have uh, primes, I don't have fast glass. Um, I don't have super telephotos and I don't have, uh, I, I just, I don't have perspective control lenses. Anyway, my point is I'm still operating on the principle that this world is still a huge place and, um, I'm still trying to make just discoveries, um, of things that people haven't seen before. And I, and I, I, I can't imagine ever exhausting it to where I have to start using, textured filters in Photoshop to make my pictures look good, uh, or I have to start resorting to composites to come up with ideas, or I have to, uh, you know, create fake light. Um, I don't know. I just, I just, uh, I don't find myself migrating towards a whole lot of Photoshop and a whole lot of uh, extra things in the camera bag. I, I still think that the 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 purity of the image just on its own uh, is still my 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 pursuit um, and as an example uh, just this past week I had the good fortune of working with a, a great model in the Mount Adams National uh, Wilderness which had a huge forest fire two years ago um, and it's just decimated so uh, what an opportunity and to have a willing model who's willing literally to roll around in all that ash and get completely covered. I mean, she looks like somebody who survived the fire. And then she's posing nude in this devastated forest. Um, I mean, the pictures I just got and had processed are, are, are just, for me personally, um, more testament to why it's difficult to not be able to create. I mean, there's so much out there that, that one could do if they just use your imagination. And part of the motivation for doing this, just so the listeners understand, is that I'm working towards a book, which is still a couple of years away, but a coffee table book on, on Newt. 
uh, nude photography, which will surprise some, but not others, I'm sure, uh, because that's not something that, that people would associate with me. But I'm also being clear when I say this, that I don't want to show nudes in a way that, that one would expect and one that has seen countless times. There was a, um, a New York Times writer who said that, or an art gallery reviewer guy who said that after coming away from another nude photo show in New York, and he said, if I see ever again another nude on a rock, I'm going to shoot myself. And to me, that was very poignant because I thought, well, I don't have any nudes on rocks. Not that that, that I don't have other stuff that's been done before. But, but it, was an, it was obvious to me that that's definitely not something people want to see anymore. And so I thought, well, wait a minute. What about nudes under rocks instead of on a rock? And, and my point by saying this is, is that, that that's an answer to I don't want to see nudes on a rock. But, okay, well, then let's have nudes under rocks. Uh, how are you going to do that? How are you going to pull that off? And I'm thinking, well, you could, you could dig into the sand at the beach and then have a nude crawl under a big rock and look distressed. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, but that's not going to, all that's going to do is look like somebody that had a rock fall on them. Uh, that's, that's not really a nude. And it's like, well, yeah, but she looks, she looks sexy in the process somehow of being distressed. And I'm thinking, no, just, just move on. <laughs> so, but so I, I do know that what I just did this past weekend, uh, at least in terms of my own research, uh, there's not a lot of people shooting nudes that have rolled around in, in uh, forest fire ash and then started posing for you. Um, most nudes, I don't, or most women, I should say, wouldn't be too thrilled, or guys for that matter, might not be too thrilled about that. But, but, it, but it raises the question, again, of you know, what can I do different, um, which is something that's quite often in the forefront of my mind. Um, you know, am I doing something that's been done before by myself? And if so, stop. Because you can't really get it any, do it any better. Uh, leave, let it go. Move on. Try to find something else. Or just as I'm driving around, walking around, I'm, I see stuff that I, I still haven't. I'm thinking, well, this is new. I haven't shot this before. So, so I guess the, the thing is that here you don't want to do something new just for the sake of it being new. I mean, I've seen no. countless people shooting just to stay on top of news and the most absurd environments and circumstances which don't make any sense just because they want to do something different it uh, it ends up being looking contrived in the end maybe so for the most part you're right yeah, yeah i agree hey brian uh that having her roll around in the ash was there any inspiration from the sadhus in india or nepal that i'm sure you've seen you know these self-proclaimed holy men that cover themselves in ash no no in, in fact um that, that didn't occur to me until I was processing this stuff. And then I shared the material uh, with a friend of mine in Florida. And uh, he said to me, he said, uh, you must have been inspired by the sadhus. And I thought, you know, that never occurred to me. But obviously, I photographed these guys. Yeah. And so I think on a subconscious level, I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if that was part of it. But it originally started. Uh, it wasn't the idea that she was going to uh, be rolling around in the ash. What, what started out with was, amongst all this devastation, you had this, and, and the first photographs would show this, uh, amongst all this devastation, you had this absolutely perfect, flawless uh, uh, human being amongst all the devastation. So that in and of itself was, was, was great contrast. But then it became, and I'll tell you exactly what happened, Bev Doolittle is a name that I doubt if anybody here in this podcast has heard of before, because she's not a photographer. She's a Western wildlife artist. And she does her fame, claim to fame, is camouflage uh, paintings, uh, cowboy and Indian kind of stuff. And um, she has one um, painting called The Forest Has Eyes. And it's a fur trapper. Uh, coming through the big green forest uh, with his horse laden with furs and he's crossing a stream. And you look at that and you think, oh, this is really well done. It's a realistic painting of a guy. And all of a sudden you go, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There's an Indian portrait in the, in the rock there. Oh, my God, there's three. Oh, look at the trees. Those are angry warriors. 
And all of a sudden in the bark and you're thinking, oh, my God, this is incredible. There's there's all these Indians that are looking at this guy as he's going. And then all of a sudden you you start looking for things that were once hidden. And so my point was, is that the original photo uh, of where we rolled in, where she rolled in the ash, um, she gets up on a burned out stump after being completely covered and assumes the pose, uh, a very vertical pose. And I backed off to show this huge vertical forest uh, with bark that's been burnt and, and exposed. And uh, uh, she looks camouflaged. She's in all that vertical lines of trees. So when you see the photo, you're thinking, oh, yeah, burned out forest. Oh, wow, that's too bad. And then a few seconds go by and you're scanning the image and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that, a, is that what I think it is? Is that a, that girl's, that's a girl, she's naked. Oh, wow. And to me, that's, that more, in my mind, was more like a Bev Doodle, Doolittle thing. Um, but, yeah, to answer your question, I'm sorry about the long-winded response. The, um, subconsciously, it could have been motivated in part by the, uh, the pseudos that I certainly have photographed. Well, Brian, uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Where can people find more about you online? Uh, just, uh, you know, in this day and age, which is great about social media is, uh, Google my name and you'll have no trouble finding all sorts of places to go to, including, um, the school as well as my workshop website, but just Brian F Peterson, uh, com for starters. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to hanging out and doing more stuff, uh, as a photographer and, uh, continuing to find, new things to share with people for sure. I, I enjoy immensely um, the opportunity that uh, you keep shooting videos provide. And um, as long as people continue to enjoy them, which they, they certainly seem to be, I'll continue to make them. Thanks well, again for, uh, for having me on. It's been, been a great opportunity and I appreciate it. And that's Brian with a Y, right? Yes, with a Y. That's correct. <laughs> we'll certainly have links to it in the show notes to all these these uh, sites Hugo do you have anything coming up anything coming up with you well first I would like to uh, thank again Brian for being with us today uh, really lots of interesting and inspiring stories uh, I'm sure our listeners will love them um, yeah as for me uh, got a trip to Thailand coming up in uh, shortly in about uh, a month and a half going to be there for a couple of weeks and then uh, what's next I'm uh, on the planning stages for a tour of Oman. I'm going to go back there after having been there in January. I'm going to organize a photo tour. We don't have uh, yet specific details, dates, and so on. But it's going to be to be great sometime in December, probably. People want to know more about that. Check out my, my website at ucphoto.me on the photo tours section. Uh, there will be news about that shortly. How about you, Ralph? Well, I'm getting ready to launch my new tour organizer training program. Uh, we have a free webinar coming up on July 20th. So if people are interested and would like to be notified, please go to tourorganizertraining.com. You can register. We'll let you know when that uh, webinar is going to be launched. It's free. Again, July 20th. And I've also got a few spots left on my uh, upcoming Romania trip in September. Uh, just a few spots left for India in October, and I'm really looking forward to get back to Cambodia in November. So people can go to photoenrichment.com for more information about these trips and to register. Yep. Uh, before we say goodbye, just one more thing. Uh, sure. I want to mention our Facebook contest. We have oh, this yeah. uh, on the on our Facebook group, the Traveling Image Makers Corner. And as we record this, we are at the end of the month of June. So we will be soon collecting the submissions for the month. And we will uh, choosing one or two pictures that we love. And we will be inviting those photographers on the show to tell us how, how they took those pictures and to tell a little bit about themselves. This is for the month of June. But as you are listening to this, we will probably already be in the month of July and we will have a new contest coming up uh, with the same rules. You just go to the Facebook group to which we will put links in the show notes and you can submit a photo 
and then we will do the same thing again next month. Uh, thank you, Ralph, and thank you, Ugo. And just as a side note, Ugo, uh, I'm sure you'll you'll get there, but um, you want to check out Nisra in Oman. Yep. Uh, it's a great, great town, and it's uh, as black as black can get when you don't have a moon to deal with as far as shooting the stars. Yep, Nisra is uh, planning to go there for the goat market. There is a goat market every Friday yeah. when all the people from, from the neighboring villages and tribes gather to uh, to exchange cattle, goats, and so on, and other goods, and all dressed up in uh, their traditional costumes uh, or dresses. It's, uh, it's an amazing uh, place and situation. Have you been there? Yes, and I was going to say that uh, the listeners need to get on board with you and go do that trip, because uh, the Omani people are like the ultimate in terms of gentle people. Yeah. Um, and they're just gorgeous and beautiful, and the weather couldn't be better for your trip. So you guys get over there with Hugo and do that. You know, it's, you'll have a phenomenal time. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> and Ralph, Cambodia stuff. And are you going to uh, CM Reap? Uh, uh, are you going to be hanging out at the uh, temples or what? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, you know, the largest religious complex in the world. you got to do Siem Reap. We, we also do uh, Phnom Penh, the capital, of course, Bong, which is where the uh, bamboo train is. Uh, Tonle Sap Lake uh, is near there. And also we are uh, going to do Kep, which is uh, there's a wonderful crab market, and that's on the, on the water. On the, I, I think it's considered the South China Sea there. So wonderful. I can't wait to get back to Cambodia. Yeah, I don't blame you. And again, you guys get on Ralph's trip because you got a chance to shoot some incredible people in Cambodia, too. And uh, like it or not, you're going to hear some really sad stories about all the mining that's still mining, meaning explosive mines that are in the ground still over there. But um, uh, that's not to worry about yourself. But there are people you're going to meet who've got some incredible horror stories. And these people also, despite all the hardships, are going to be some of the warmest, most uh, the greatest heart enriching people you'll ever meet too. So get on board. You got a couple of great people here to do workshops with Hugo and Ralph both. So by God, get going guys. And you keep shooting. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brian. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. So thanks again, Brian. Thank you, Hugo and uh, everyone invest in yourself. Get out and shoot.